Chapter Seventeen of Shakespeare: Personal Recollections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Shakespeare: Personal Recollections by John A. Joyce. Chapter Seventeen: Death of Queen Elizabeth, Coronation of King James. All that lives must die, passing through nature to eternity. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. What have kings that privates have not do, save ceremony? The new year of sixteen hundred and three brought no consolation or happiness to Queen Elizabeth. Her reign of forty-four years had been bloody, but patriotic, and while she had long since passed the noonday of her glory, her sunset of life hastened to its setting with a fevered brain and tortured heart, to think that she had not one real friend living, but surrounded by cunning courtiers, who were already manipulating for the favour and patronage of King James. Like a blasted pine on a mountain peak, she moaned and sighed every day and week, awaiting the deadly, stormy gust that laid her low in the crumbling dust. To amuse her lingering hours of grief, Lord Cecil desired the Shakespeare Company to give its new version of Love's Labour's Lost, before the Queen in the grand reception-hall at Richmond. Burbage went to the castle and made all the preliminary preparations for the play, and on the night of the 2nd of February, 1603, the fantastic love-play was given for the amusement of the Virgin Queen. She sat in regal solitude, and with mock laughter tried to enjoy the mimic show. The royal audience was great in rank, beauty, wealth, and intellect. Yet through the various scenes of the light-hearted drama, Elizabeth only swung her head, muttered, and sighed, while her courtiers evinced great amusement at the predicament of the various lovers in the play. Nothing can minister to a mind diseased. The Queen professed great disappointment at the absence of Shakespeare from the performance, on account of sickness, as Burbage told Her Royal Highness. But William and myself remained at our rooms at Temple Bar that evening, working on the first drafts of Macbeth, to catch the praise and patronage of King James, the Scotch-Englishman. Since the execution of Essex and imprisonment of Southampton, Shakespeare never said a word in praise of Elizabeth. And when he heard of her death on the 26th of March, 1603, he betrayed no feeling of grief, but on the contrary expressed delight that the way was now clear for the release of Southampton, and other victims of Elizabeth from the Tower. Several weeks before her death Elizabeth was afflicted with a choking sensation, and ghosts of her murdered sister, Mary Queen of Scots, and her former lover, the beheaded Earl of Essex, appeared nightly. Cecil asked her a few days before she died how she felt, when she muttered, "'My lord, I am tied with a chain of iron about my neck.' Thus a cruel, bloody conscience sat like a fiend over her dying sighs and groans, and though surrounded with the wealth and glory of the world, the Virgin Queen stepped into eternity with only the memory of a successful tyrant to light her to the Pluto realms of her father, King Henry the Eighth. Her funeral procession and burial in Westminster Abbey was the grandest exhibition of royal pomp and magnificence. The whole population seemed to fill all the alleys, streets, and parks of the great city, with the army and navy leading the funeral cortege, while the great bells from steeple, tower, and temple rang out their periodical wail of sonorous sounds for twenty-four hours. The body of Elizabeth had been scarcely cold in death, when Lord Cecil and the Royal Council proclaimed James of Scotland, King of England, Ireland, Scotland, and France, 
tumbling over each other in a mad race to throw themselves prostrate before the rising sun, forgetting in a day the honours and benefactions showered upon them for forty years by their late mistress. And thus we see, from age to age, the greed of man on every page, no matter whether young or old, his strife in life is search for gold. King James left Edinburgh on the 5th of April with a royal escort for London, and by easy stage from town to town and castle to castle, made a triumphal march to London, where he arrived on the 7th of May, 1603, putting up at the Whitehall Palace. The lords of the realm and millions of faithful subjects gave James their loyal adhesion and support, lauding him to the skies as monarch of the realm and defender of the faith. Hope had no thorns in her crown. Protestants and Catholics alike, on their first rush of spontaneous patriotism, made a bid for the patronage of the new king, who, although reared a Protestant, was known to have sympathy for certain Catholic lords, who tried to save his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, from the fatal block. James never forgave Elizabeth for the murder of his mother, and in his inmost heart despised his predecessor. King James, after his coronation and triumphal entry into London on the 15th of March, 1604, ordered a partial jail delivery releasing hundreds of prisoners in Scotland, Ireland, and England, exempting only highway and house-robbers, murderers, and those who had committed overt acts of treason against the Crown. Many political prisoners had been immured in the Tower and other state prisons, on trivial or trumped-up charges, preferred by jealous courtiers on personal or religious grounds. James was very friendly to the dramatic profession, and granted a charter to the Shakespeare Company to play at the Blackfriars, Globe, Prince, Fortune, and Curtain Theatres. In the coronation procession, nine of the King's company appeared dressed out in fantastic array, wearing four yards and a half each of silk scarlet cloth. The nine chief actors thus honoured by the King were William Shakespeare, Augustine Phillips, Lawrence Fletcher, John Hemmings, William Sly, Robert Armin, Henry Condell, Richard Cowley, and Richard Burbage. King James sent for Shakespeare and Burbage, and told them to be ever in readiness as the King's servants to perform at any of the palaces that he might entertain domestic or foreign guests, and assured them that the puritanical policy that had hounded them in the past should not prevail during his reign, believing that the stage, properly managed, was as great an educator for the people as the Church. When William told me of his interview with the King, I expressed great delight with the other literary bohemians that now sat on the throne of old Albion, a patron of poetry, painting, music, and sculpture. The Church of Rome and the Church of England had been battling for nearly a hundred years in Britain for the mastery, and although the devotees of Luther's Reformation had cracked the creed of popes and princes, there was a general demand for a new version and translation of the Bible, cutting out the Catholicism of the old book, and expurgating the vulgarity and superstition engrafted on the Word of God, by the apostles and bishops of the first, second, and third centuries, after Christ had been crucified for the sins of all mankind curious kind of celestial justice, to kill any man for my sins and crimes. I prefer to suffer for my own sins, and not fall back on a scapegoat to carry them off into the wilderness." On the 1st of September, 1604, a great religious conclave was held at Hampton Court by the established Church and the Puritans, and there it was determined to make a new, revised, and complete edition of the Bible, by the royal authority of King James. On the 1st of May, 1607, forty-seven of the most learned men of the British realm assembled in three parties at Oxford, Cambridge, and Westminster, to make a new Bible for the guidance of mankind. Hebrew, Greek, and Latin scholars made up the great conclave, and after four years of detailed labour, the King James edition of the Bible was published to the world, cutting loose forever from the power of Rome. 
Although the word of God has been revised several times since by man, there are yet a large number of sentences and verses in the Old and New Testament that might be expurgated in the interest of decency, reason, and science. This electric age is too rapid and wise to gulp down the obsolete doctrine of ancient fanaticism, and the preachers of to-day are painfully alarmed at the decreasing number of pew-holders and patrons, who once listened to their rigmarole platitudes or eloquent dissertations on the power and locution of an unknown god. On Christmas Eve, 1607, the King's players, with Shakespeare and Burbage in the respective roles of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, produced that great historical play at the grand reception-room of Whitehall, in the presence of King James and the nobles of his court, surrounded by the ministers and diplomats from all the civilized nations of the world. I never saw a grander audience, interspersed with the most beautiful ladies of the world, who shone in their jewels and diamonds like a field of variegated wild-flowers, besprinkled with the morning dew. The witches in the play seemed to startle the king, and more than ever convince him that these inhabitants of earth and air were all of a reality, and should be destroyed wherever found, believing that they held the destiny of man in the cauldron of their incantations. Come, come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here, and fill me from the crown to the toe top full of direst cruelty. Make thick my blood, stop up the access and passage to remorse, that no compunctious visitings of nature shake my fell purpose, nor keep peace between the effect and it. Come to my woman's breasts, and take my milk for gall, you murdering ministers, wherever in your sightless substances you wait on nature's mischief. Come, thick night, and pall thee in the dunnest smoke of hell, that my keen knife see not the wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark. This speech of the devilish Lady Macbeth made a deep impression on the audience, and caused the King to squirm in his throne-chair at the contemplation of the murder of Duncan. But when William entered as Macbeth, and rendered the following speech, James wished himself a million miles away, and yet applauded to the echo the murdering thoughts of the Scottish chieftain. If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence, and catch with his surcease success, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here, but here, upon this bank and shoal of time, we'd jump the life to come. But in these cases we still have judgment here, that we but teach bloody instructions, which being taught return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poisoned chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust. First as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed. Then as his host, who should against his murderer shut the door, not bear the knife himself. Besides, this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek, hath been so clear in his great office, that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off. And pity, like a naked new-born babe striding the blast, or heaven's cherubim, horsed upon the sightless coursers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye, that tears shall drown the wind. I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition, which o'erleaps itself and falls on the other. Still brooding on the murder of Duncan, Macbeth says, Is this a dagger which I see before me, the handle towards my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not, fatal vision, sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain? 
I see thee yet in form as palpable as this which now I draw. Thou marshalest me the way that I was going, and such an instrument I was to use. Mine eyes are made the fools of the other senses, or else worth all the rest. I see thee still, and on thy blade and handle gouts of blood which was not so before. There is no such thing. It is the bloody business which informs thus to mine eyes. Now o'er the one half-world nature seems dead, and wicked dreams abuse the curtain-sleeper. Now witchcraft celebrates pale Hecate's offerings, and withered murder alarmed by his sentinel the wolf, whose howls his watch, thus with his stealthy pace, with Tarquin's ravishing strides towards his design, moves like a ghost. Thou sure and firm set earth, hear not my steps, which way they walk, for fear the very stones prate of my whereabout, and take the present horror from the time which now suits with it. While I threat, he lives. Words to the heat of deeds too cold breath gives. I go, and it is done. The bell invites me. Hear it not, Duncan, for it is a knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell. After the murder of Duncan, Lady Macbeth is constantly haunted with the ghost of her victim, and in midnight hours, sick at soul, walks in her sleep, talking of her bloody deed. Out, damned spot! Out, I say! Here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And then retiring to her purple couch amidst the cries of her waiting-woman, she dies with insane groans echoing through her castle halls. Macbeth, the pliant, cowardly, ambitious tool of his wicked wife, is at last surrounded by Macduff and his soldiers, and informed that his lady is dead. And then, soliloquizing on time and life, he utters these philosophic phrases. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. To-morrow, and to-morrow, and to-morrow, creeps in this petty pace from day to day, to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle! Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And then, in the forest in front of the castle, Macbeth is at last brought to bay and killed by Macduff. But the murderer of Duncan, brave to the last, exclaims, "'Yet I will try the last. Before my body I throw my warlike shield. Lay on, Macduff, and damned be him that first cries, Hold enough!' A whirlwind of applause echoed through the royal halls at the conclusion of the great Scotch historical drama and Shakespeare was loudly called before the footlights, making a general bow to the audience, and paying deep, low courtesy to the king, who beckoned him to the throne-chair, and placed about his neck a heavy golden chain, with a miniature of his majesty attached. William was glorified. Murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. End of chapter 17